Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Courtney Sizing, Director of Partnership Marketing at Angel City FC. A soon-to-be member of the National Women's Soccer League, Angel City has already gotten a great deal of attention, in large part due to its numerous investors that include soccer legends and Hollywood stars. Finding people following us because of, hey, they follow Sophia Bush, who's also one of our investors, and you know she shares us on social media, and they're like, we have a, no reason to be a soccer fan, but oh my gosh, I want to do what Sophia Bush does. So um, we're trying to cultivate that for sure. With this unique group of investors, Angel City has goals that set it apart from other professional sports organizations. We made it very apparent when the team was announced that we will stand for more and especially we want to do good in the community. So with that, my role in particular is affected because 10% of all of our sponsorship dollars goes to the community. Courtney also shares how the sport of soccer has found its market in the United States. It's kind of played this underdog role historically, especially in the U.S., and kind of counterculture. Like it's very traditionally has been this like counterculture group of people that weren't really cheering for the, the bigger sports, the longer standing sports, as you said. And people take pride in that. They really like that it's been a little underground. A soccer player herself during her college career, Courtney shares her thoughts on the name, image, and likeness legislation and her pursuit of a master's degree in sports administration. Being a student athlete, knowing little of the industry, but having the passion for it, I needed that to propel myself into a career where I could actually be dangerous and effective. Before we get started, please take a moment to follow Credentials Only on social media. And if you would, please leave a rating and review wherever you are listening. Don't forget to check out show notes for this episode on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Courtney Sizen about partnership marketing and soccer. Thanks so much for joining me. You know, from reading sports industry publications, even like People Magazine, there is a lot of buzz about Angel City FC. When's the club's first match? We will play April of 2022. It's a lot of noise to be a year away from your first match. What's driving all this buzz and this energy around the team? Yeah, there is a ton of buzz, which we love. And it's really driven from, I think, our expectations of our team that are really going to ignite a lot of change and movement for our whole sport, the women's game, and also for women's sports in general. So we always say that we're much more than a soccer team. Our expression right now is soccer, but we stand for a lot more, which is a better community and honestly a better world, especially for female athletes and female teams. That's a huge huge undertaking, let alone starting a a soccer club, but doing all of that. There's a lot of energy behind it though. And let's start with the people. And this is really name dropping, but there's a lot of impactful and powerful people who are driving that ship for Angel City. Who are some of those people? Yeah, there's a ton, which is incredible. Um, So we have Natalie Portman definitely at um, the top. That's one of our, our key founders. Um, she played a big role in getting this team started. Alexis Ohanian and Serena Williams and their daughter Olympia, of course, um, are on our investor roster. Um, we have a ton of the women's national team players from the 99 World Cup and even earlier. So the likes of Julie Foudy, the Abby Wombachs, the um, uh, Angela Hughleys, and many others, which is a fun group. And a lot of those women actually, you know, had to sell their own tickets, you know, from when they were players and now they're kind of doing the same thing. Um, but on the ownership front, which is a really cool experience. 
Um, and then a lot of people in entertainment, like Becky G, who's a pop star, and America Ferreira, who's an activist and actress. So it really spans across kind of this tech, sports, you know, um, Hollywood uh, group that, um, you know, come from different walks of life, but have found a commonality in pushing the women's game forward. What's it like to be inside the organization with that type of leadership and investment? Yeah, it's honestly wild. Um, just so many pinch me moments from like an influence standpoint when we can make a few phone calls and get to people or ask questions or um, just have access to things because of that reach. Um, so it's, it's unbelievable that we have not just one, but so many of them. Um, and every day it's just like, wow, this is like the norm, you know, like this is, this is normal um, for, for our group and our organization. So it's pretty special to be a part of. Your role is in partnership marketing, and, and I want to talk a little bit in detail about that. But on the broader scale, how does that bigger mission and changing sport and changing women's sports and, and empowering women, how does that impact what you do? Yeah, for sure. So um, we made it very apparent when the team was announced that we will stand for more and especially we want to do good in the community. So with that, my role in particular is affected because 10% of all of our sponsorship dollars goes to the community outright. Um, it's agreed upon what type of project, what type of cause we both mutually care about. Um, but that just is, is part of our model. Um, so it really holds us accountable and our partners accountable that we're doing the work and we're not just saying that we care about something. It's, it's tangible and real dollars um, as we also set out to be a very high, um, you know, achieving team on the revenue front. You know, it's going to be, you know, serious money that we're talking about that's going to the community. So, um, you know, with our Jersey partners in particular, we've announced um, a few other partners as well that they're already in motion delivering meals to people, um, you know, in need with DoorDash. Um, so these things are happening and will continue to happen, but that certainly um, affects me on day to day and how we manage our partners, um, knowing that's a really, really important piece to our puzzle. So what is your day to day now, especially being a year out from actually having a game where you're going to be welcoming these people to your stadium? Yeah, I get that question a lot. Um, it's it's similar to normal times, I guess, when there are games um, in the sense that, you know, I'm handed the partnerships and we activate everything in that contract and making sure we're, you know, delivering on it. But it, it's more than that in this moment, since we're so new, we're building our brand, like we're letting our partners in that door. So my day-to-day -day is twofold, really. It's, you know, pushing the envelope and making sure we're doing things for our partners in a new way, an exciting way with content. Um, we're releasing our jersey later this year. So planning for that. Um, and then letting our partners in on those key moments that we're going to be having, right? Our first ever player signing coming this summer and, and in the fall. And, um, you know, our, we are revealing our crest, um, official crest and colors in a few months here. So like those moments are, are really fun with partners. Um, so it's really kind of that pushing our brand forward, but alongside these incredible partners. It feels like there's got to be a balance of everything here between that social initiative and the product on the field and the hype and the buzz around the celebrities. And again, that product on the field, how do you have to manage that with sponsors? And, and is there some amount of keeping them in check with their expectation? Yeah, I, I really think it's, um, you know, it's done on the front end. You know, we are so solid in who we are and what we stand for and, you know, it's insane that our investors are right there along with us, you know, like everyone's in it for the right reason. And that includes our partners. So those conversations actually become so natural because 
it's all about those expectations on the front end and we have those really solid. So yes, there are going to be asks here and there with investors or with partners or, or going beyond in certain ways, but that core value of making the world a better place, even though that sounds super cheesy, um, it's just so centering and so anchoring for all of us, no matter what we're doing, um, which is so unique. And especially in my role where there are so many voices and trying to take in different information and, and you know, sharing it accordingly. Um, it's really, really wonderful that we have this uh, strong mission and brand um, and our and our partners are in it for that reason. So there's not as much, you know, trying to, I guess, maybe friction in past, um, you know, experiences or other relationships. Um, it's really centering to have that at our core, which I think sounds like super cheesy every time I say that, but it's like really, really true. And I've done this role in other places and like, you get that at times, you get that in certain moments, but like, we're kind of just like a big love fest in that way as a company. Um, and certainly like we're the new kid in town and super shiny. So, you know, we have that kind of realist to ground us too, that this, you know, is a, uh, is a long game, but um, it's just, it's really special when we have that like really core belief that we all are in on. You mentioned the uniqueness of it. Are you finding that there are other partners? Cause it, there's, as you look across all sports, but even when you get into particular sports, they're kind of the same categories that are always in the bucket. And are you finding that you guys are starting to interact with some companies from outside those traditional categories? Totally. Yeah. Our, our approach and how just unique we're building our own community has attracted a lot of new voices. Um, you know, certainly there are to your point, like traditional roles that will be filled, but we're at a really unique spot where we can say, hey, mission first, who do we want to bring into this family? Um, so that is opening a lot of different conversations and you'll see some of that hopefully here soon, but um, we're, we're looking to, you know, some other leagues as well as how we can build these uniquely. I think the WNBA has done an incredible job building some really unique partnerships, um, and, you know, just in different spaces. So um, I think our mission is really built for that um, to open some new categories or non-traditional. We actually get that a lot too. We've had some conversations where um, like Birdie's our sleeve partner on our Jersey They're They've never done a partnership before, but they're like, we love this idea and love what you do. Like, let's figure it out. So we're kind of like opening that door for a lot of brands too, that haven't traditionally done sponsorship, even though they may be in a semi-traditional um, space or category, but never have really dipped their toe into sponsorships, let alone, uh, you know, female sports and sponsorship. Does that then give you an opportunity to change your conversations because they don't come in with a set of expectations because it is so new to them and you can kind of create a, a unique experience for them with their sponsorship? Absolutely. It, it's, it's all about growing it together. Um, and there's even more collaboration in those moments um, because it is new. Um, and it gives that fresh set of eyes. I think so many times in sports, it's, it, it, you know, sponsorship can be a lot of different things and you have high hopes, but there's always core things you have to care about, um, metrics and visibility and certainly, you know, return on these investments. But, um, with this uniqueness and kind of fresh eyes, you know, it, it keeps me honest and certainly keeps our whole organization honest of what we're delivering. Um, because, you know, it is super unique and customized for each partner. It's been about a half year, I think, since the team was introduced, maybe a little longer than that. You said you're a year away from the play happening it probably seems like a long time away but it also probably feels like it's going really fast oh yeah so fast <laughs> how are you guys kind of managing this because it's different when you have that deadline of the season starts in a month or two months but a year 
that's more time than you usually have to deal with. Totally. Um, yeah, I'm used to having like, you know, two month off seasons and then you get back from the new year and all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, we have a game in six weeks. Like, what are we doing? Um, which certainly helps uh, the urgency. But yeah, I mean, we certainly have our our milestones that will hit. I mentioned our crest, our jersey, um, you know, the sporting staff, you know, believe it or not, we will play soccer as we like to say sometimes. So we're having uh, the technical side, um, you know, here soon in the summertime probably. So uh, that's going to be really exciting. And then players later on um, late in the year. So those milestones will be big to rally around to get us ready. Um, but, you know, I think we're just, we're just, there's so much else to do in building a fan base that we're filling this time besides those big milestones with just opening us up to our whole community, you know, and we're finding it that it's, although obviously centralized in LA, we're finding people following us because of, Hey, they follow Sophia Bush. Who's also one of our investors. And, you know, she shares us on social media and they're like, we have a, no reason to be a soccer fan, but oh my gosh, I want to do what Sophia Bush does. So um, we're trying to cultivate that for sure. Um, and keep, you know, keep the, the ship straight in that sense, but there's just a lot of things we can be doing. And we're just kind of railing around those milestones. I, I mentioned. And you mentioned some of those milestones, one that happened, uh, more recently is the announcement of the stadium and your home field. Where will you play and how do you think that will play into what you guys are able to do in terms of drawing fans and activations and the sponsorship space? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll be playing at Bank of California Stadium, um, which is near downtown LA and it, great location, a great, great venue, um, relatively new comparatively to other venues, not just in LA, but across the country. And um from a fan experience standpoint, it's going to be top notch, um, both play on the field and entertainment value, and then just the experience of that venue. So that was really important to us. Um, and then yeah, location and just being accessible for many different areas close to downtown, um, will be really, really important. So, um, that's going to be a really fun moment where we can have a full stadium, um, mapping the goal to sell out and, um, you know, share that with our fans in person for the first time. And what is capacity? What would a sellout be? I believe 22,000. Okay. That'd be, that'd be an awesome experience. I'm sure. Oh yeah. Is the, it, it's probably not there yet without a technical staff, without players, but do you think there's going to be pressure to perform, to kind of live up to some of this hype, the buzz that's been building? Oh, absolutely. But I think that pressure totally drives us. And I think Abby Wambach said this, and this is super cheesy for me to quote one of our investors, Abby, um, but pressure makes us, I think that was like in an ad long ago for Nike, I want to say. Um, but it stuck with me and like pressure makes you, it's a, it can be break or make or break, but you kind of choose to make it in those moments. So we love that. I think all of us as a staff thrive on that in front office and certainly our players and coaching staff will as well. Um, and we're looking for those people and players that get that and want to achieve that with us. It is probably the strongest bit of attention right now around a new franchise, but you guys aren't necessarily alone in the high profile investors and having a lot of buzz around you. This is something that the whole NWSL is seeing. How strong do you think the league's position is right now? Yeah, it's stronger than ever. Um, I So this is year nine of the league, if I'm not uh, mistaken, and year 10 will be next year when we join. And this is the longest lasting female uh, professional soccer league in the U.S. ever. Um, previously those leagues were at four or five years and then folded. And I actually remember being in college, I was just talking to somebody about this, being in college and uh, WUSA um, had just folded. And I was like, so confused. I had no idea about the business side. I had no idea what's going on, but I was like, I don't get that. How can it fold? And like, as a former soccer player myself, like I just was like, how do people not like this, right? 
Um, so that was like a very interesting moment to reflect back on, but now that the league has been around nine years, it's stronger more than ever, um, both commercially. And I think from a fan standpoint, um, you know, there's just, there's so much more to be done, but it's, it's impressive to look back and just where we're at right now. Um, but the, the trajectory is there. Um, the other expansion teams, um, Louisville, um, starts this year, um, Kansas city making the move from Utah, um, will be debuting. I think they play today actually, um, plug for the challenge cup for end result that starts today. So, uh, definitely chime in or definitely tune into that. Um, but anyways, yeah. So I think like that, those expansion teams are a good signal signal of growth. Um, and yeah, just, I think there's just this different energy around the end of women's sports in general, but the end of in particular, just with the year that, um, you know, women's national team coming off of their fourth world cup victory in 2019. Like, I think you always look at those years as world cup victories, um, or just world cups as growth points. I mean, certainly the 99ers set this first kind of bit in motion. Um, and even the team before that, that won. So there's always those moments, but this feels the most sustainable. Um, and I've seen that too, from my time at us soccer working that those moments are incredible and they rally a whole country around it. But then the magic happens on the club teams, you know, in those off years and there's like real growth happening on the club level. Um, and we, we love to see that. We love to see that Washington, uh, I think Kansas city as well and Chicago have both added now many people to their investor groups as well and getting those bigger names like a Naomi Osaka coming from your world, North Carolina, right? Like hugely beneficial to those sports uh, or those teams rather. Um, and those clubs that have that extended visibility and just a great signal that these investors are truly seeing the investment. This is a good investment for you as an individual. Um, so kind of the model that we started has now taken on and that's great. Like we want that. The, the, the phrase I always say too, is like the rising tide lifts all ships, right? Like we're all in this for that, that reason, um, that we can have learnings from other clubs and vice versa. Um, cause collectively it's, it's time, like the league is here. It's, it's only going to blow up from here. They were one of the first leagues to get back in action last year. And I think enjoyed the opportunity to get out and play early with the challenge cup, uh, during the pandemic. And I know you weren't in women's soccer at the time, but you were still in the sport of soccer. How important do you think that was for the NWSL to capitalize on that and to get out there and successfully hold that tournament? Yeah, it, it was huge. And I think they were the first league. I don't know if other sports were happening, but the first league to my knowledge. Um, but anyways, yeah, just a really great moment for viewership, you know, first and foremost, like the viewership numbers were incredible. Um, and that's also really great data that now can be pointed to both from a sponsorship perspective and validating a lot of, you know, fans and, and seeing that there is, there's real traction. Um, so that was huge. And I think just actually very fun because they were the first, you know, like people were watching and enjoying these athletes. The games were pretty insane, um, themselves entertaining. So I think it, it validated a lot of the things that we see weekly with end of Um, but it gave it that appropriate spotlight because those tournament vibes, like they just feel different, both for the players and for a fan watching. It's, it's more concentrated. It's why World Cups are super fun. It's why Olympics are super fun because it is that concentrated any day you could turn on a game and watch. Um, so I think that that definitely played into why it was so successful. You mentioned those viewership numbers. What are some of the other metrics that, you know, maybe that sales team you're working with is using to help lure in the sponsors that you eventually get to work with? Yeah. So viewership is definitely a piece of the puzzle. Certainly our reach as a club and just where we're being talked about, um, both on the media side and social media. 
certainly our investors being involved in that in some capacity, um, just any happenings that we're doing, you know, they're watching in a part of it. Um, and then the trajectory, right? We're talking about five, three, five years in advance, and this is just the start. So having those, those key things to look for, um, and then clearly the community impact, you know, like knowing that that's a big why that gets people in the door to want to have the conversation with us, um, showcasing where we can really have that impact. Um, and you know, the plans to do that over the next three to five years. So, um, those are just a few to name, to name a couple. The, the community aspect strikes me as interesting because to hear community, it just, it feels like it's gotta be very personal. And you could see that maybe in a Louisville or a Kansas city, a little bit easier than in a Los Angeles where there is no shortage of stuff going on. Uh, how do you guys think you're going to be able to successfully keep that personal feel in such a major market? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're going, especially from our partners, like our, our partnerships saying that, Hey, we're going to do X project with this 10%, you know, we're, we're going where the need is. And that's, I think how we're being so engaging and so impactful. And we have these three pillars that our impact dollars will go into it's education, equity, um, or essentials. And so an example is DoorDash. I mentioned with the, the meal delivery. So that falls in the essentials, right? There are people that are just going hungry, especially now more than ever with COVID. So we've taken this partnership and turned it into a vehicle for good. So we're delivering meals to people. So in that sense, it's, it's going where the need is. And I think that is always going to be personal. Um, and certainly, yes, it's a, a very saturated market, especially with sports teams and games to go to. Um, but we view ourselves as everyone's team. You know, we're, we share a venue with LAFC, uh, but that's the extent of it. We want galaxy fans to also be fans of us. And then the non soccer fans are checking this out because, you know, they're a big fan of, Sophia Bush or right. Someone else that's going to be at our games. Um, so there's like a lot of reasons, different reasons, depending on who you are to be our fan. But we think the LA market is strong enough and big enough that, um, you know, we'll capture everyone's attention in a different way. When it comes to the match day and the match experience, that is a way that a lot of sponsors do activate their partnerships to come in with an organization that has never played a match. And even with some partners who have never been involved with a sports franchise, is there an opportunity to have this blank slate and to hum up with some different things and, and maybe try some things out that you haven't seen before? A little bit. Um, I say a little bit because soccer is super unique. You know, it's, it's not basketball where there's timeouts every few minutes. It's not, you know, football where there's, uh, you know, every play has a 10 second dead period after like soccer is so innately engaging on its own that advertising and, and partnership activation in game traditionally looks pretty simple and not super crowded. You know, you have your LED boards and that's pretty much it. So from that perspective, not really just because the sport lends itself to be really clean, um, but certainly pre-game, post-game, we'll be looking to do different things. Um, you know, we have a few partners in the beverage category. So, right, just some fun things we can do around that. Um, so we're, we're definitely tackling that. It's, uh, it's something we'll be talking about, you know, soon here as we get closer to that time. Um, but yeah, we're soccer is just unique in that sense where we're where we care about soccer clearly we're a soccer team but like i said the, the impact comes from a lot of things we do outside of game day too you have spent a lot of time in soccer you mentioned playing it you came from the san jose earthquakes what are some of the things that you think 
make soccer stand out in some of these crowded marketplaces. You talked about how engaging it is for the full 90 minutes, but it does seem like it kind of cuts to a different core audience than some of the more traditional, not necessarily traditional, more longstanding sports. Yeah. I like that nuance of longstanding. I'm going to start using that. That's a really good phrase. Cause even I catch myself saying traditional. I'm like, no, that's not what it is. Yeah. It's <laughs> soccer been around super long. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so special and I, you know, can talk about this for a long time, just as a former player myself and like still playing right at beer leagues out, you know, there's, there's very few sports that you're still like an older person going out and playing, but it's like, you just love the game. And to me, it's always been like a creative outlet. And I think a lot of players see it that way, which is very unique. I don't think there's any other sport that that really happens. Um, especially pandemic life, just like going, kicking a ball around. Like I, I was doing that because I just wanted to touch a ball. Um, but yeah, so a few things I think that, you know, point to that is like, it's so it's kind of played this underdog role historically, especially in the U S um, and kind of counterculture. Like it's very traditionally has been this like counterculture group of people that weren't really cheering for the the bigger sports or the longer standing sports, as you said. Um, and people take pride in that. They really like that. It's been a little underground. Um, so that's actually a really healthy balance to keep with our supporter groups and other people who are more traditionalist of, you know, we're not selling out. This isn't, you know, any sort of sellout type mindset. It's support for the things that we love. Um, but that counterculture vibe is really unique to soccer that I think people gravitate towards. Um, and, you know, even small things like jerseys, you know, people wear soccer jerseys as streetwear because you can wear them like that, you know? And I think that's a very big point of pride, um, you know, for soccer fans that they're wearing what the players wear and those unique jerseys that were worn in particular moments in a, in a world cup or when, you know, your team won the championship, like that really means something to, to keep and hold on to, um, and then in the soccer also is, is very community oriented naturally. I think the ability to play the game without much equipment, right? Ball and a couple of sticks or cones or a couple of rocks, even, you know, like whatever you have, and that's why you see it so globally, um, which I'll talk about the global piece in a second, but you know, the, the natural ability to play the sport wherever you are is, is really uniting that people want to rally around. Um, so that's really special. And I think, you know, I've seen it on the MLS side where the teams are just accessible and they're ingrained more so into the community, um, partially as a differentiator at times in their markets. Um, but you know, I, at the San Jose earthquakes, I can name probably a lot of fans that have met Chris Wondolowski at an event or have interacted with him at some points. So I think it resonates with the players, even, um, how it's different. Um, and then certainly the global aspect of it. I mean, you can't talk about soccer without talking about how global it is in nature. You know, the U S is, is getting there. Um, I think from a visibility standpoint, just with more competition, especially from the players, right. Of just having the best players here, the women of course are, um, but men on that side are, are working towards it. Um, but there's the reality is there's just more options. So participation tends to fall off. Everyone started at some point, but um, you know, oh, I can make more money as a basketball player or, hey, I want to try something new. Like that's just something we fight versus other countries that, um, you know, that's the only thing you play is soccer. So, um, yeah, soccer is the best. This is what I want to say <laughs> as my summation. Soccer is the best. <laughs> Does Global give you an opportunity to kind of reach out to different audiences within markets? You know, if you have uh, a international player on your team, can you then really cater some marketing to 
that international community within whatever locale your team is playing? Yeah, within uh, within your you know league boundaries that you're supposed to be marketing in. That's my uh, political answer for that. But yeah. <laughs> Certainly from a content perspective, that's something we did at the earthquakes and I know a lot of other clubs do. Um, the fire does it a really good job of that as well. Just these big markets that have so many different nationalities and cultural groups, like it, it's, it's part of it, you know, like soccer is so uniting and sports are too, but soccer in particular, because it's so global, um, you have certain events, kind of the traditional things, right? Like ticketing days and, you know, making sure those groups are being celebrated, but yeah, there's, there's always ways that you can talk to particular groups or involve particular um, you know, groups that you can be a part of the sport because it, you know, there's not a lot of education, you know, when you're talking about those different groups that are, are used to soccer. In case there's someone listening who hasn't followed much soccer, I want to have you explain a phrase you mentioned a minute ago, supporter groups, because it's unique. It is not something you necessarily see in other sports. There are no doubt rabid fans, but supporter groups is a totally different beast, isn't it? Oh yeah. They're amazing. Um, they're always the people. So if you haven't been to a soccer game, they're always the people you see that are constantly chanting throughout the game. There's not like a silent portion. They usually have drums and TIFOs, which are the big banners, smoke bombs when they're permitted, or if they sneak them in, um, they're, they're the, the wild ones, you know, you, that's why you go to those soccer games because you want to also watch the supporter groups go crazy. Um, so they're the most devout fans for a club. Um, in many cases, they're an official group of their own right. But, you know, it's very organic. The, the fans themselves have band together to be this official group, um, MLS clubs, just because that's where my experience was, have, have made efforts to obviously connect with them, work with them, put them in, you know, appropriate places, not just on game day, but engage with them in many ways. Um, so, you know, we have, I think four, I want to say official groups for Angel City. There are supporter groups um, and, you know, constantly working with them on, you know, where do they want to sit in the stadium, fun stuff like that. But then also, right, like how can we best support them? Um and vice versa. So getting them to events, you know, here soon when we can do that safely um, and uh, giving them also access to things we do. So they're, uh, they're the fun ones in short. And I think the key word that you use there is organic too. I mean, this isn't like you guys are planting people in the crowds. This is part of the culture around the sport and what helps totally. make the sport a unique experience. Totally. And unlike any other sport, you know, like a great example is, um, so uh, let's say the, the American Outlaws are a good example. So the, the U.S. Uh, US soccer, their uh, biggest supporters is this group American Outlaws, but they have chapters all across the country that, you know, basically pop up. I think there's one in like Sarasota, Florida, who actually know the guy that started that. And it's like four people, but it, it all happened organically because it's just like, hey, we're at the same bar every day watching soccer. Like we should do this more often in official capacity. So it's super organic. Um, that's how it started and kind of goes back to that counterculture feel. I think that, um, you know, really started uh, early on with soccer. Um, and it's funny now, actually, because you mentioned it, it's like other sports have like taken this uh, concept on, but kind of try to manufacture more. I've seen a few NHL teams that have become to make this, you know, I think they call it clubs or right or like different support fans. Um, and you kind of see them try and like catch along with it a little bit because they've seen the success in soccer and they see how communal it is. And that really is the core of it. You know, it's, it's bringing people together that are the most passionate about that team. Um, so it is funny to kind of see those pop up and, and try to kind of replicate. 
to, to an uninitiated soccer fan, I mean, in my mind, it's almost like the student section at a college game, right? It's just yeah, kind of. That's a fair comparison, I suppose. Yeah, it's like, you know, you're the rowdy group. Um, yeah, that's going to be the loudest and the most vocal during games. Sometimes for the best reasons, sometimes, you know, just because they're, they want change or they want something in particular, but um, it, the game day experience would not be what it is without supporter groups. That's for sure. The other thing that strikes me, and I am relatively newbie to following soccer. I've been to one MLS game in my life. And a lot of that is just location based. But as you talk about the supporter groups, um, I'm going to use some of your words back to you. Rowdy, yelling, chanting, drumming, smoke bombs. And yet my experience with soccer is that it's a really family friendly event. Those seem to be contradictory things, but it, that does seem to be a, a audience you guys are pursuing is the family and, and it is a safe environment. There's a little bit more of a, a chilled atmosphere compared to some other sports. I won't name names, but compared to some other sports where you're going to see a bunch of people thrown out of the stadium for drunk and disorderly, mm-hmm. even though you have smoke bombs and yelling and chanting, it feels pretty chill and safe for a family. Is that something that soccer strives for or does it just lend itself to that because of the pace of play? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. Like it's, it's so rowdy and exciting, but for the game, right? Like that focus goes back to the game because there's no natural breaks because it's, you know, two 45 minute halves. And like, because of that, people are just focused on what's going on in the field. Um, because there is so much, I think the, the, the old saying of just that like soccer is boring is like, well, you don't get it. You know, like, it's not the point. Like it's not a score every time. Um, there's so much more going on behind the scenes. So yeah, it definitely lends itself to both. And it kind of goes back to that participation. Like so many young kids still play soccer at a young age. And, and the goal is like, right. To keep playing, you know, that's how we build better soccer players. Um, but you want to take, you know, your kids to be able to, to go see the local pro team. Um, so it does, it definitely has both feels um, because of how to, how it functions. Your earthquakes experience, what did you find to be the most impactful learnings that you had from your couple of seasons with that team? Obviously, how to manage through a pandemic being one of those lessons, but outside of that, what did you pick up, yeah. especially about I, partnership marketing that you're doing? Yeah. Well, yeah, I learned how to say the word make good a lot. Um, <laughs> I've definitely petitioned uh, to remove that from the vernacular of, of English, but. Um, yeah, no, besides that, I mean, had really great experience there. Um, you know, really specifically was able to understand better the club environment. Um, I kind of talked about it, but coming from U.S. soccer, where the reach is just so large and incredible at these large moments at World Cups, um, you know, campaigns for partnerships that last two years in the making, you know, and uh, it culminated a World Cup, like incredible experience. But bringing it back to the club, right, like that's those in-between moments I mentioned before of having the same day in and day out fans there and trying to attract new fans in a market. Um, like those are really unique things. And so I learned a lot about that experience from a, from a business standpoint and certainly from a partnership standpoint. Um, and that community access, I feel like I've said it so much about soccer, but it's really true. And even more so with partners, one, just seeing your partners more often because more often than not they're in market. Um, so that's always nice, but, um, you know, how are you, kind of like keeping things fresh and keeping things engaging for partners. Um, and you know, just the, the flow of a season, you know, it, it gets cyclical year to year. Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's a really just unique part about being in a club versus 
kind of a larger entity where you're on these larger World Cup cycles. So I think that that community aspect is is just so so unique to the club, um, and you just see the same faces. Like that's just a, a very a very cool thing, um, and people just really love their clubs. Like be, people love being from somewhere, you know. <laughs> I it's just it's funny how that is. Uh, but the Bay Area is unique because there's a lot of transplants here, so um, definitely a different approach of of who we're engaging with. Um, but such a rich culture here um, of soccer fans. A lot of fans here are um, Mexican national fans, actually, not U.S. fans. So we have a few games that they would play um, some Liga MX teams, which is the, the professional league in Mexico. Um, so different things like that, where you're bringing in people to the stadium, introducing them to, um, you know, the MLS team and market in this case, in this case, the Quakes. Um, so those are, are some unique ways. I think other MLS teams do that too. Um, but yeah, it, it was a really great club experience. It's interesting with soccer. You mentioned the rising tide lifting all boats, but soccer is unique in that global appeal, but also that means global competition. There's not a lot of competition for the NFL audience to consume other football outside of maybe college football or yeah. the NBA. Certainly there are other leagues, but the NBA is considered the pinnacle. Whereas within soccer, there are those national teams, but there's also a league in Mexico. There's the premiership. There's La Liga. I mean, there's so many different leagues. And in the past, you know, decade, decade and a half, they've become so accessible. You can get up and watch a match pretty much all day on a weekend now because every league has some sort of broadcast rights still here in the U.S., it feels like. So how do you view that as an opportunity to rise that tide or is it boy we really need to make these fans who already love soccer and convert them into an earthquakes fan or an angel city fan or whatever team you might be with at the time yeah totally um it's a great question and so kind of like two like two routes to talk about it right there's obviously the fan side but also the player side is really interesting um mm -hmm. so first the fan side like the the rights that you're talking about of all these leagues which in, in sense, our competition for eyeballs, um, them having rights in the U S is relatively new, like premier league having, I think it's NBC rights. I think they just bring up. I want to say that was really the first, I think, big network to carry soccer, um, in the U S and certainly kind of spawn off this like premier league in the U S and now you see a lot of these other premier league teams having like social channels specifically for the U S fan. Um, even some of the Bundesliga teams have done that too. And, and successfully because, you know, for whatever reason, whatever your entry point is, you become a fan in those clubs like for life, right? Um, so definitely a part of kind of capitalizing on that and saying, okay, MLS, like how are we getting soccer fans to say, hey, but who's your MLS team? You know, you can have, they're, they're not competing in that way. Like competing for eyeballs, certainly on a Saturday, if there's tons of games going on. Um, but like you can be a fan of, you know, Borussia Dortmund because there's a couple Americans that play on that, but you can also have an MLS team. So it is that entry point of soccer fans, but then having an MLS uh, team, I think other sports too, it's so much like, and this is a trend I think across the board, right? Like no one's saying, Hey, I'm from Buffalo. I'm going to be a bills fan or I'm from a certain particular area. And I'm a bills fan. Like, because now the generations are moving around, people don't live in the same place anymore. Like you become a fan because of a player, you know, like, that whole side of the marketing, this marketing mix is, is growing rapidly. Um, and I think more than ever, you're seeing people latch onto players and say, Hey, I love what he does off the field. Or I love what she does in this mode or like, Hey, she's a 
baller. I want to follow her. Um, and wherever that team goes, you become a fan of that. So I think MLS, there's a lot of player movement, right. With loans and trades and things like that. So, um, one, educate people on that. And two, like following that player, um, can give people that entry point and you see it, you know, with big names that have come over, um, from different clubs, um, to the MLS in particular, um, it's not just retirement league anymore, like the Beckhams and, and others that have done that, like, although he's still in MLS now as a, as an owner of Miami, but, um, yeah. So I think there's, there's a lot of those different points, but I don't think it's very, it's as competitive as it looks on the outside. Um, just because you, you have, you, you want people to be fans of both. You can be, it's, it's, it's not as competitive as you would think. Um, so that's kind of the fan side, but the player side too, like that, it fascinates me in so many ways, especially seeing it at different levels, um, the role of MLS, right. And because it was like this retirement league and guys were coming over great for those short bursts and those big moments of saying, Hey, so-and-so plays here now. Um, but you're also seeing this huge influx of South American players come and they see this as the league to get to, which is new. Like that's a really new thing. Um, but a ton of bright stars have come through that. And you'll see that in the coaching space as well, having a lot of South American, um, or just international coaches in the MLS, which is also bringing a huge new wave of players from where they're coming from and who they've coached previously. So that's a really interesting thing. And then you're seeing teams like sell their players for money to big clubs in Europe, which also has not historically happened as often. So you're seeing like a Tyler Adams from, from Red Bull, which is incredible. And he's doing great things still in the Red Bull family over in Germany, I think. Um, but just like really cool things like that that are happening that excite me as like the fan, me fan version of me. Um, because you don't see that. And the goal also is like, let's do that with the women. Like there's no reason that now the women can't also have that kind of competition because that rising tide also lifts like, yeah, the super league in England for the women is also growing. And they've, you know, those clubs have finally put investment behind, you know, Chelsea women and Tottenham women. And it shows some of the women's national team players have now gone and play there. And a few are still playing for Manchester United. So that is also really good for any of us that type of competition, even though this is still the best league in the world. And, and that's a big difference, I think, that's worth pointing out, too, is that, you know, you you just listed off teams that are in the premiership that also have a women's side. NWSL is not necessarily the sister team to an MLS team. Correct. You guys are really on your own. You happen to share a stadium, but that's it. And you said you were very clear on that delineation when you brought it up. Is that very unique in the sport globally? Um, it's a mix, I think, across the board for the women's side. Um, there are a few NWSL clubs that operate like that, where they're kind of under the same umbrella, Houston, Portland, Orlando, I think are the three, maybe there's a couple more. Um, but other than that, the others are all independent. Um, and so I think that's actually pretty consistent across England as well. There's a few that are independent, probably more so they're under the same umbrellas. Um, but also the first time ever getting shine for things, you know, when Manchester United, launched their new kit, they had imagery of both men and women, which two years ago wasn't happening. Um, so that's a really good sign. Um, certainly on the business side, there's probably still work to be done to give the money directly to the women, but um, it's definitely a start. In terms of the work you do, one of the things you mentioned earlier is having to take in information. So when it comes to partnership marketing, what is that information that you need to seek out and get to help you do your job? Yeah, it's, it's everything. <laughs> um, people in my role and, and what I do is, is really kind of like keep tabs on all things that we're doing. Cause it's, it's about doing things for your partner that we know there's an expectation that we're doing, but it's also listening and taking in what 
you know, the ticketing team is doing, what initiatives that they're pulling for, um, you know, season ticket holders, what our, just our community team is doing um, because a new need has arrived in uh, LA or we've been engaging with a new group, um, certainly on the content front, understanding who we're talking to and what stories we're telling. Because even though, you know, those things operate on their own, understanding those are good for people in my role, one, to integrate partners as needed or as, as you know, we see fit, that could be an enhancement for the partner, but also for our club. Um, and then two, like just understanding the whole ecosystem so that I can regurgitate that back to a partner in a positive way. Um, Cause it's always about sharing that information. One, to make sure the partner is feeling a part of it. Um, but then just the education, like you talked about, like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of education constantly and just partnership in general, but also our sport and the things that we're doing. Um, and we're building a brand. So a lot of this newness and why we're doing things is a really great share back. Um, just so that, you know, right. Our partners are a part of this journey with us, no doubt. So that's on me to keep that engagement, um, so that they know that. How much time do you typically spend then to learn the partner and understand their wants and needs? And obviously there's a lot of, it's going to be written out in a contract of the boxes that need to be ticked, but I feel like to do your job well, you probably need to get way beyond that piece of paper. 1000%. It's constant. Um, a ton on the upfront when I know like we're, I'm in talks with our sales team constantly of what's coming down the pipeline, understanding how those negotiations are going. I'm typically brought in later on in those conversations when it's close so that I can hear kind of those final thoughts. Um, but so that's really helpful. But yeah, it's constant just for my own research, visibility, follow on social media, all that fun stuff. Um, but it's constant asking those questions about, you know, what's new, what do you care about? What are your goals with this partnership? Those are the first questions I ask when we get on our first, I would say meeting, but on our first Zoom call um, with these partners and just understanding their overall goals as, goals as a company. Um, and then constantly, I mean, we learned in the last year, things change more rapidly now than ever before. So being in lockstep that, you know, when we see something, an article written, or they post something, proactively asking about it. And that's where those relationships come into place and building really strong relationships with those partners um, because those, those conversations and those checkpoints become much more natural once you do that. Um, and just genuine care, you know, we, we care about their business. Idea generation, what's your process and, and are you someone who just kind of is constantly churning some stuff or do you need a group setting to, to do a brainstorm session? What's works for you? Yeah, for me personally, um, big post-it note person. <laughs> so I will just see things on social media. I'll make a list. I have like on my Slack channel, like my personal Slack where you can Slack yourself. I just like put random ideas in there. Um, we usually do a good job of gathering just, hey, who's doing, you know, an initiative that will match ours elsewhere in, in the marketplace. Um, so I'm definitely kind of an ad hoc, random ideas will hit me <laughs> in the middle of the face, but I'm making a smoothie. And I'm like, I should write that down. Um, I recently invested into a whiteboard, which has been fun. It's like a mini one, but just like visual and very visual in that sense. Um, so it's constant and, and constantly, especially in, in the partnership marketing space, like just being in tune with what other teams are doing, what other deals are happening. seems like every other day this at the last month, I feel like everyone's been announcing new deals kind of after the COVID hangover. So just really being in tune with the marketplace and who's spending um, is also really important. Does it change how you are a viewer and a spectator when you're watching a game on TV or, or you're in a venue where you kind of eyes wide open for look at that signage or look at that activation? Oh, 100%. I'm broken. <laughs> broken from a sports fan perspective. And I tell people that who try to get in the industry, especially in partnerships, like you, you kind of give that up. It's just 
it's natural. It's, there are times where I can separate it. I thankfully got to go to the women's world cup in 2019 as a fan. And so I turned off the sponsorship mind for a hot second during games um, and got to actually enjoy those victories. Um, but yeah, always looking at things like that. It, even my family members now that have watched games with me, like they send me stuff about sponsorships. I've broken them in fully <laughs> and got them obviously to support angel city um, partners, you know, um, when possible. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a constant recognition. I also think that's really important for people that um, want to be in partnership. Like it's just, it's part of being ingrained and, and being good at it of wanting to see who's doing what um, and how, and those ideas you talk about ideation, there's no better way to do that than watching games to see how people were doing it. Um, you know, in the, in the MLS bubble, we were doing virtual signage for the very first time in the first league to do that. And so like, man, that was a super fun experiment to go through. But as soon as NBA hit a game, flipping that on to see how that looked, um, you know, NFL, they ended up doing it too, but, um, yeah, just always curious to see how they, they do it. You've mentioned working with us soccer and you were in partnerships there for a while, but before that you were a little bit more on the grassroots side. And it, that's very different than being on the national team or the pro side of it. For a sport like soccer, where participation is, as you've referred to a few times, so huge. What was that experience like to be on that grassroots side? And I think it's unique in soccer that it's not just the players, but you guys are very hands-on with coaches as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome. I personally love that side of it. Um, it, it kind of takes me back to, you know, my soccer days and, and knowing that, but that's also where like the long funnel is formed, you know, keeping kids playing, making sure that they're having good experiences is really important. Um, coaches are even more important. You're talking about keeping people in the game. If you have a bad coach, you're probably not likely to keep playing. I feel like I had my fair share of awesome and not so awesome coaches over my years. Um, uh, yeah, my dad was my first coach. He was not on the not so awesome side. He was on the awesome side. <laughs> I think in kindergarten, I think my, both my parents, in, in, in case you're listening. <laughs> yeah. In case, in case he hears this. Um, but no, I mean, those people are so influential when you're young. Um, also just how you learn the sport. You just learn so much about yourself too, which is another, you know, side passion of mine of keeping girls in particular playing, um, playing in the sport. It's, it's so important because you learn so many things outside of just how to play soccer um, that serve you well beyond uh, your playing days. Your college experience had a few different elements that I think are probably very formative for you. The first was being a student athlete yourself and also being active, uh, the student athlete advising committee president. And um, as you look now back at your college experience as an athlete, how do you think that helped you now that you are in the working world? Yeah, in every way it has helped me. Um, not just from a soccer perspective, clearly. Um, there are so many things student athletes learn and that I learned um, that serve me. Everything from just those uh, in, intangible qualities, right? Being on time, <laughs> um, just being dedicated to work, being super disciplined. Um, I joke sometimes when people are late to meetings or, you know, in past, you know, past years or whatever, it's just some people you can tell like, Hey, you've never woken up at 6am for, you know, eight weeks straight in your off season to do workouts, you know, and did that just build something? It's not a knock on those people. It's just student athletes have that. Um, and you're just made a little bit differently because of that. And so I love telling student athletes, like you have that superpower, like you need to know how to spin that in the business setting. Um, but you have, you have that superpower. So yeah, those are just a few quick examples of how it served me, but I think 
you know, the added roles of being involved in leadership for student athletes um, just also showed me that this is a pathway for a career as well. Um, had some very influential people at the, um, in the athletic department at Northern Illinois, where I played, um, who were able to introduce me to how they even do their job and what does this world mean? So um, it, it definitely sets you apart um, as a student athlete and gives you access to some of those things. Having been a student athlete who now works in partnerships, I'm very curious to know your thoughts on the name, image, and likeness rules and as it's getting rolled out. This is a great topic. Um, Could be an episode in itself. Yeah, we should schedule another time to do full full (laughs) depth. But, you know, it's funny because as a student athlete, our sporting, uh, our athletic director asked the student athlete advising committee group, like, do you think athletes should get paid. Cause it's been, I mean, ongoing conversation for years now, um, not to the extent it is now. And I think I was one of the first people raise my hand and say, absolutely not. Like you're getting paid in tuition, like education. Like many of these student athletes are getting scholarships. Um, you know, like that's, that's, that's your, your, your devaluing education, right? Certainly learn the industry more. And I was also a women's soccer player, which is very different than a football player, a basketball player who's truly being marketed for the sport, right? Um, so again, opening that mindset, I think I think there's no way to not have that happen now where, where student athletes can own their likeness um, and kind of do with it what they please. Um, I, I think athletic departments are gonna have to staff accordingly. Like it feels like there's just this, there's has to be a hands-on management of this and just education and helping student athletes. What does this mean? Um, but I think it's going down the path now where it's, it's going to have to happen because I think players have become smarter and more vocal. And in other ways, we've seen that vocality um, come up um, because they know their worth. And even with, um, you know, the NCAA, not going to get into the, the weight room issues at the moment, but, you know, just the following these athletes have and the ability for institutions and other folks to make money because of their successes just feels like a disservice to that athlete and what they're putting on the line every day um, and what they want in the future. They want to have a sustainable future for themselves. And this is just an early start on that. And there's no doubt there are certain sports that are economic drivers and Mm-hmm. women's soccer and, and some of the other sports probably aren't necessarily bringing in tons of revenue at there's some, but not at every school. Do you think that these changes are an opportunity or a threat to a sport like women's soccer? You know, I think it's more of an opportunity, an example like that, where there's this ability to create content or want to um, be visible kind of on this like influencer type track, although I kind of hate that word. Um, it, it, it gives you that ability to like make a living or make money on that, you know? Um, and if that's your path, great. And even if it's not, you can, you can just have that opportunity to do it. So I think for sports like women's soccer or maybe others, um, in the Olympic space, like Olympic sports space, um, it should, it should be seen that way. Um, I, I don't think it threatens their ability with having it, you know, be done elsewhere. Another aspect of your college experience is you did pursue the master's in sports administration. And I hear from people from time to time, they're on the fence. Should I go pursue that master's? Should I just go get a job? What do you think the value of that was for you? And how much of that is because of where you went? And I'm happy for you to brag on your experience because <laughs> you did go to one of the top programs for Oh man. Yeah. Oh gosh. Thankfully I did attend Ohio university for their sports administration program. 
I can't speak highly enough of, of it and just the experience I had. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit of a mafia, a little bit of a family that, you know, gets talked about at times, but it's super special. <clears throat> so I feel very fortunate to be a part of that. Um, and yeah, for me, it was pivotal being a student athlete, knowing little of the industry, but having the passion for it. I needed that to propel myself into a career where I could actually be dangerous and effective. Um, I got to see all facets of the industry. I had no idea. I came into the program actually wanting to be an athletic director and thinking this is what I wanted to do, but I, that's all I really knew being a student athlete. I saw, you know, our athletic director at the time where I played and, you know, had good relationships there. I thought, this is cool. Let's do this. But then you kind of learn, right. The different aspects of life, you know, probably a college town and just, you know, restrictions that, you know, college athletics has. Right. And so I, I kind of made that mindset switch and just understanding there are different areas to go in. And then also what drives those areas, you know, I knew I wanted to be attaching myself to revenue in some way, knowing that that's how you excel, knowing that's how you push, you know, companies and teams forward. Um, so I just learned all of that in a very hyper-focused setting, which I'm also a pretty intense person <laughs> sometimes. So like that, I needed that like very focused time. Um, so that, that was really beneficial for me for where I was at. And then, uh, secondly, also just the network. I mean, sports, no doubt is network based, um, to, to move up in your career, to get into, uh, your career as a first step. So Ohio has an incredible network, um, but not just the people that are alumni, which are incredible, but your, your classmates, the group that you're with, the, the connections that you make now are out in the industry doing the same things you are or similar things. And you can call upon them for, you know, thoughts, assistance, whatever. And that's just like a really powerful group of people. And I'm very fortunate. Our class is very, very close. Um, so you just have those relationships already to start your career, which kind of sets you ahead. So for me, it was the 100% right decision when people kind of ask like, you know, should you, should you go to grad school? Should you do not? I think it depends on where you're at in life currently, what you want out of your career and also where would you go? Um, I, there's always, in my opinion, benefit to higher education. Um, but as long as you know what you want to get out of it. And one of the unique things about the OU program is the emphasis on experience. And could you just share briefly some of what you were able to get out and do through that program at OU? Absolutely. That's how we first met, actually. So this is a Indeed. great circle moment. Um, yeah, ton of emphasis on experience, you know, everything from Ohio football games, simple things like setup or just having different roles um, on game day. It's just it's a starting place. Everyone has to do some of those roles when they first start out. Um, so I was able to also get experience um, at, uh, at the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. There is the Sprint Cup. I think I don't think Sprint's a sponsor anymore, but this is the, the cup that was out there. Uh, I want to say Verizon. I should know this is a sponsor person, but it's too much to keep track of with NASCAR. <laughs> Um, but whatever the cup was called. So I spent a few weeks in Vegas to do that. Um, also the mountain West basketball tournament, um, the conference tournament, we had some alum there and then at in Houston. So for the, the clay court championships, um, with Bronwyn, who's a tournament director, who's also an alum of Ohio. So I was able to do, you know, sometimes it's basic things, just operation, but it gives you that insight and gives you that experience as a starting point. Um, and, uh, got to, you know, see that event firsthand and it's a really incredible one. I close every episode with a segment that, as a soccer person, I hope you really appreciate the name, Set Pieces. Uh, of same, course, that's amazing. <laughs> same half dozen questions for all of my guests. The first one, what are podcasts and or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning? That's a good one. Um, definitely Front Office Sports comes to mind. They're great newsletter-wise and on social. Um, 
for podcasts. The soccer person in me, I usually uh, listen to football with Grant Wall. He does a really good wide variety of um, of guests on that. Um, and also How I Built This from NPR is a favorite uh, podcast. I just, I think Guy Raz is like the most adorable person. If you can tell from like a voice, I don't know. <laughs> um, but just so many unique stories. I think the Patagonia one always sticks with me of how that was created and just like culture, right? Like they have such a strong culture at that company. So those are some of my, some of my faves. Social media, your most valuable follows, the posts you don't want to be missing. Um, I mean, I gotta say Wendy's cause they're just like one of the OG brands with attitude that like set everyone, I think to like, try to be, you know, vocal and kind of noisy and obnoxious, but you know, it, it's taken off, but they were kind of the first ones. Um, Ted Lasso for sure. Again, as a soccer person, if you haven't watched that, anyone go watch it. It's the best, the best show out there. Um, Although it's a fictional character, I think it's a great account. And uh, it's like a perfect mix of kind of humor, but just like heartfelt stuff, you know, just like the show. Um, and selfish plug to go follow uh, Angel City social media. At we, we are Angel City across the board. So don't forget that one. Great follow. What are a couple of books you would recommend others check out? Yes. Um, so Untamed by Glennon Doyle is phenomenal. Um, truly, truly amazing for both men and women. I know a lot of women have read it, but I think it's totally beneficial for both. Just, she has such a great story. Um, and then I also love Essentialism by Greg McCown. That's why I say his last name, um, kind of all about prioritizing and um, just a really unique take. What would you consider to be your cheat code or your best life hack? <sighs> oh, interesting. Um, I struggle with this one. I don't know. Well, this one is, makes me sound really basic, but if you go to Starbucks, ask for no ice and you get more coffee and then put it on ice when you get home, if you get a nice beverage, cause they always add so much ice. So, you know, you get two for one basically. That I like that. That's really smart. All right. <laughs> I don't What's judge your Starbucks just for the record. <laughs> I, you know, like, like all coffees, but that one came to mind. <laughs> What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? This one was like hard to pinpoint one. There's so many things I think like that I, I think about constantly, honestly, like I'll hear things, especially as like, you know, my little peewee soccer days. Um, I mentioned like my dad coaching me, like that definitely sticks in my mind of like a few first games. I think I like scored a goal and was like, okay, I want to keep doing this. Cause like, you just feel awesome. <laughs> Um, but also like the one that, uh, I think is my real answer is I went to, uh, the Schwann's USA cup, a youth tournament in Minnesota. I think Blaine, if I'm not mistaken, Minnesota, which I don't even know where that's at, but it was far away, big road trip, but we saw, um, the women's national team play. And I took a picture on my like disposable camera of Mia Hamm and I blew it up or my mom printed it or something. It was in my bedroom for like years and years and years. Um, so getting to see them at a young age was like amazing. And like friends of mine had like, you know, signatures of the athletes on their arms and stuff. I'm like, why did you put on your shirt? Like, get to wash it off. Um, but everyone was just so psyched. And that was a pretty cool moment. My final question, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Uh, you know, I do. I kind of like, there were a few of them that I, I weeded out and I finally threw away because they're just from random things or weren't as special. Um, I think they're under my bed, if I'm being honest, <laughs> like in a clear bag, like a stadium clear bag under my bed. Um, I definitely looked through them. I, I moved last year, um, a middle pandemic move. Um, but I, that was like, oh, I haven't seen these in a while. I haven't been to an event. So I took a trip down memory lane and looked at a, at a few fun ones. 
Courtney, I really appreciate the time. Best of luck to you and everyone at Angel City. Uh, there are a lot of people watching you guys, but also rooting for your success as the team takes the field for the first time next year. Appreciate it. This was so fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. As Courtney mentioned, the Challenge Cup is underway now, and I'd encourage you to check it out if you haven't seen the NWSL in action yet. I appreciate Courtney taking the time to record this episode and share these insights. I also appreciate you for listening. I would love if you'd leave a rating and review for us on your favorite podcast platform. If you're not already on our mailing list, head over to credentialsonly.com so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. And make sure to follow us on social media at Credentials Only on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Credentials Only is edited by Mike Mouche, which is a Holter Media production.